Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Drew Nicholl. AIMA is the global representative for the alternative investment industry, with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe with news, views and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you are a hedge fund or private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Long Short. Regular listeners will notice that we've increased our output and will now be doing weekly episodes. So expect to hear more from us going forward. But turning to today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by TXF's Editor-in-Chief and Director, Jonathan Bell, and Jolyon Elwood-Russell, a partner at Simmons & Simmons, who focuses on private credit and trade commodity finance in Asia. Thank you both for coming on The Long Short. Adrian, thank you very much for having us. So just for some context, uh, Ama recently put out a paper in partnership with you both uh, that examines the merging of worlds between trade and commodity finance, which has traditionally been dominated by banks, uh, but private asset funds are now entering the space. Uh, the paper came out in November and is free to read on the AIMA website. But today we wanted to get the band back together to see how the paper stands up in the current global economic environment we find ourselves in. Uh, so Jonathan, if we could start with you, uh, the report begins by describing how global supply chains and international commerce are adapting to these structural changes in the economy and the global financing system. Could, could you just expand on that for our listeners and explain what those main drivers of change are and, and give us a health check on the global marketplace today? Yeah, thank you, Drew. Uh, I think that really in terms of uh, increasing trade, uh, we've been really seeing um, the 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 expansion of globalization. Now, this is a big debate, globalization. Some people are sort of trying to say that globalization isn't taking place as it was. Um, We still see that taking place. There's an internationalization of most uh, manufacturing companies, and that requires um, a huge amount of trade finance to be put into place. Now, if we look at the the global uh, scope of trade, we're somewhere in the region of, depending on what year we're looking at, we're in the region of about anything between 17 to 19 trillion dollars worth of global trade, merchandise trade on an annual basis, which is pretty substantial. And, and, a, and, a, and a pretty big portion of that is actually requires trade finance. So the main drivers of that have been this, this increased globalization, internationalization of product manufacturing, and the shipping of those of those um, uh, goods around the world, whether they're manufactured goods or whether they're um, commodities of one sort or another. Um, and, and, and in consequence of that, we're seeing the, the growth of shipping as an industry in itself. Um, and as we've seen recently, there's been a, a fair amount of disruption because of the, um, the COVID uh, problem that we've seen um, over the last couple of years. And that doesn't seem to be abating in any way. I think that that is actually sort of like still there. Um, one of the drivers of change for trade is also um, the political imperative. And I think that the political imperative comes into it because there are so many politics at play in global trade. Um, and that includes 
um, over the over the Trump years, we saw uh, the introduction of sanctions and um, increased tariffs. And where we saw that taking place, it meant that other people, other countries were looking to um, move um, or purchase products from different uh, jurisdictions. And I think that there's a wider scope uh, taking place within that. Overall, what this does give us is greater opportunities um, in all of this. Um, and at the same time, on the commodity front, we're seeing a particular amount of volatility, and that's across metals um, and across um, energy products. And that just relates to a lot of um, impetus, which is coming from COVID, the, pick, the pickups that we've seen during the COVID period, um, and then the slowdowns as lockdowns have taken place, and then back to back to uh, pickups. And then also the transition to greener energy is also giving us quite a lot of opportunities. So these are all the things which are sort of fermenting the trade um, uh, paradigm at the moment. And um, where we do have these opportunities, um, then we're seeing sort of like more demand for trade finance. Jonathan, it's been a incredibly turbulent number of years. And and I think in terms of the supply chains, then it's often the case that trade finance and supply chain has always been on the at the back of the pages, whereas at the moment, supply chain tends to make the front pages. And as you say, the disruption has been amazing. And the amount of focus on resilience and the call for resilience is always um, it's, it's suddenly uh, increasing. But I think the reality is, um, while there's been it's a turbulent year, it's not all bad, is it? Supply chains have always, have always throughout history been disruptive, um, and it's not unusual for trade finance to try and find a way through. And as you said, with politics, it's often the case that um, politicians come and go, but the mercantile class will always prevail, and often people forget that. Um, so. This is a testing time for supply chains, but it's interesting that they will, um, you know, that they are coming back and they will come back in different forms. Yes, uh, I, I totally agree with you there, Jolian. Uh, the resilience of the trade finance community um, is quite exceptional and uh, they do tend to outride the uh, pol politicians and the political element which comes into that. And um, that's it's just been proven um, through any kind of downturn in in trade that we've ever seen um how how readily uh, financiers and the mercantile class as you say are capable of riding through anything and uh, right. this is what we're seeing at the moment and we're, we're actually you know when we come around to say particularly the commodity um side we're, we're actually in a boom time and um and as we come through everything on the merchandise front uh, for manufactured goods we're seeing you know consumers with an awful lot particularly in 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 the northern hemisphere with an awful lot of um spare capacity for for spending and 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 the, and really the takeoff in trade is quite is going to be quite phenomenal and uh, we're seeing sort of like bits of that taking place and um the trade finance community will um step up to to match that um in in association with um, asset managers and alternative investors and the non-bank uh, financing community. And I think what actually prompted um, the report was precisely that. Obviously, trade finance and, uh, and, and supply chain 
is not a new uh, type of financing, but as he said, what comes out of some of the um, you know the, the disruption is very new new forms of financing, uh, innovative um, ways to look at financing in a innovative ways to look at uh, the supply chain and that's very much um, coming through and and asset managers as you say are incredibly innovative can see the opportunities uh, that will come and that you've just mentioned um, and I think though we've been talking about trade finance as a asset class for a number of years um, and I think that it's only been accelerated now in the last few years, well, in the last couple of years that we've all been subject to the enormous disruption as, as there's a number of push and pull factors that will inevitably um, change the landscape of, uh, of trade financing. Yeah, absolutely, Julian. And I mean, trade finance is, is the real oil that, um, that makes the wheels of global trade go round. So, um, you know, we just need we just need that to be in place. And, you know, we should all be pretty secure. And so just turning to back to the paper and, and sort of one of the key themes that came through for me, you know, beyond uh, you know, many of the uh, disruptive or, or, or volatility indicators that you mentioned, you know, uh, trade tariffs, COVID, uh, you know, geopolitical issues coming and going. Uh, we also have this longer term underlying problem of the financing gap, which you've identified. And I, I believe you've valued that around $2 trillion. Could you just explain to our listeners, you know, why this gap is increasing given the growing interest in trade finance and what the implications are for the market of, of having this, this increasing chasm between those that need financing and those that get it? The two trillion trade finance gap is a well-known um, or, or well-known in trade finance circles anyway um, uh, number around uh, that that's come up with from um, a uh, Asia Development Bank and Asia Development Bank annually does a report that tries to look at the gap between where SMEs can obtain financing and where there are and where generally financial institutions and banks finance. Now, it's certainly not that scientific, but it is an enormous gap. And what it reflects is that the lack of people who have access or the lack of SMEs that have access to real financing or trade financing. And that gap is ever increasing, um, whether that's due to, uh, you know, um, banks refocusing, whether it's uh, just a vague capital uh, availability. Um, but there is an inevitable gap, um, or rather there's a, there is a big gap, and that will, that is continuing to increase. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, uh, that, that, that's totally correct. Um, you know, the, the figure that came from the Asian Development Bank um, is somewhat superseded by, you know, another report which was done by Standard Chartered, which put the figure at, um, at roughly about 3.4 billion. But they did actually say in that report that it could go to uh, a trillion rather, and they it could actually go to 5 trillion. Um, and so nobody really knows. And if, and if you consider that, um, you know, that trade 
global trade is what you know anything between 18 19 trillion overall um it's not it's not really surprising but why is the gap increasing i mean you know it's it's really increasing because of the one the demand for trade finance um and um because people know that it is overall um the best product to be using um but also um, we've seen the retrenchment of some of the commercial banks, the big commercial banks, which are involved in, in trade finance. And that is surrounded, um, that has taken place really through 2020 um, because of a couple of um, quite serious fraud cases in commodity trading companies out of Singapore, uh, but not just there, but also in Dubai. Um, but there are exceptions. There are real exceptions to the rule, um, you know. And but it has it caused a commence, immense concern uh, amongst uh, some of the big commercial banks, which has really driven them backwards and asked them to sort of like look at themselves again and what they're doing. Uh, but even before that, I mean, we saw banks sort of, you know, just exiting from certain parts of it because of the fact that compliance is all over commercial banks at the moment and and you know where this is taking place it actually creates great opportunities for um the funds um and uh and uh, institutional investors into into the space um so um really i mean the implications for the trade finance market is that uh, we we just need more players coming in um the banks will come back, but this is we, this has always been cyclical. Back in 1998, where we saw a couple of commodity fraud cases, you know, some of the banks that were in there, and and these were big institutional in, institutional banks exited from the trade finance and commodity tri, trade finance space that they were operating in, um, and they were out for a number of years, and then they came back again. So there is a cyclical approach to this, but um, certainly it does give us immense opportunities. And just to follow up on that, Jonathan, you and I are old enough to know that, as you say, on the cycles, every 10 years or so, we hear the end, it's going to be the end of the letter of credits. And that's, um, and people have been saying that for, you know, for generations, but it's still there because it's of the value it provides um, within the market. But there is no doubt that the push factors and as you say the financial institutions and the trade banks the capital cost of providing trade finance um, has gone up and not just from frauds but just just generally um, and therefore as a result of the capital costs and reallocation of where they need where they think they can make better returns especially in a very low interest rate environment um, has been to re to refocus uh, and refocus on those products and the concept of bank disintermediation whereby the banks are either certainly in asia are retreating to their home nations um or um are as i said refocusing on some other clients um or refocusing on primary clients rather than this sort of the smaller sme which generally makes up the uh this this, this financing trade gap um so those are the very much is a load of push factors that keep this trade finance gap growing um but as you say hopefully the pool factors for prior for asset managers and where that's creating the opportunity um the asset managers are starting to fill those gaps 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Jalian, and uh, and uh, I think that um, you know Asia will be a telling case because um, we're seeing the biggest growth in trade finance in in Asia, and as we know in Asia, I mean, particularly when we look at say uh, the subcontinent and uh, certain parts of um, of uh, Southeast Asia, um, as you say, the letter of credit is is something which is a very valued tool and um, something which is not going to be discarded totally. Um, for some time to come, um, and as you said, you know, people were talking about the demise of it some some years ago. Uh, but I mean, it, it is it is the valued tool of the trade finance industry in, in all its forms. Um, and what we are seeing, I think, with that is you know the fur further digitalization of of those bits of uh, trade paper um, to the digital um, uh, format, and that will help in in a number of in a number of ways, uh, particularly in in tracking documents and uh, and any kind of um, misinterpretation that those documents uh, might have placed in the paper format. So that will take place, but the letter of credit is certainly here to stay for a much longer period than people ever thought. And we're definitely going to touch upon APAC uh, in a moment because I, I'm very keen to hear about the, the maybe unique opportunities in that region. But just before we get there, because you teased on it a little bit there, uh, you know, it's just to sort of sum up, you know, you've got a situation where uh, the, the number of players or the overall demand for trade financing is increasing, uh, especially in the SME portion, while at the same time, uh, the traditional commercial banks that, that offer this financing are retreating so even more so within the gap that as you as you rightly mentioned has been around for many years we now have a gap and into this gap uh, in part is stepping the private credit funds which uh, is sort of laid out in in this paper you hinted at the interest rate environment and and why that might uh, dampen the the value proposition uh, maybe until now but uh, but as i think most people can't avoid to uh, notice the the conversations around rate hikes are prolific now and you know it's more a question of how many rather than you know whether there will be any at all so just with that in mind from the private credit perspective what is the value proposition for entering uh, this new uh, section of the financing market well i can definitely take that because private credit by its very nature um is looking for yield and therefore it is looking for assets that um safe but have a good um generative yield but compared to uh, but traditionally compared to the very low yields um that the banks or the margins that the banks used to charge in relation to their facilities um there was no way that any asset manager would it would even look at trade finance as an uh, as an asset class because it was just too low um following you know the certainly the last couple of years there's been a number of factors that have helped um this the first i think is very much the price expectation now even though um interest rates were zero um traders had an expectation that interest rates should be close to zero following covid in 2020 um and a lot of the um and the frauds it became very apparent to the market that the price of money is not 
reflected in terms of the interest rate that was prevailing at the time. The risk is, is higher. And therefore, the expectations of traders and suppliers are shifted and they are willing to pay a higher premium and a higher margin and appreciate that interest rates um, for trade finance are not that low um, or have been as they have been historically. So I think that there's been a mental shift in the market uh, for people looking that the price of money and the price of money to trade is more expensive and those business models have adapted to that um, and are adapting, which gives the opportunity for asset managers that are expecting a higher um, return to come in. Um, but I think also private credit and asset managers in itself does, uh, does pick up one very good area of the market, which is a lot of traders, a lot of suppliers, manufacturers are looking for relationships um, and relationship lending, um, not necessarily from their banks, but private credit are very sticky in term when they when they when they have a deal, they like to work very closely, they like to understand their customers. And therefore, the financing they can offer is very bespoke. And they like to say that it is can be more um, adaptable to the circumstances than say a bank um, and so that's a certain an area where they are taking um, where they are where they are providing some very good um, financing um, in that they can offer quicker and more adaptable and more bespoke structures um, albeit at a higher premium and people are prepared to pay that higher premium especially if you know they're getting a standard product from a bank at a higher interest rate so i think that that again will be a, a, a an opportunity um for some of the uh for for some of the asset managers yeah i mean yeah yes Julian, just as you were saying you know often the, the we see and it's again on a cyclical, cyclical basis you know the trade finance community the commercial banks distributing trade finance um which eventually because of the competition in the past has become too cheap um and it's too cheap for the risks um that that are there inherent in the market um and that's very much the case you know on the on the commodity front the structured commodity front too um, and that's what we've seen. So since, as, as, as you mentioned, since 2020, uh, the beginning of, well, really the end of 20, 2019, um, the cost of finance has had to go up um, to be commensurate with the risks um, involved. Um, and it's not just there, it's also on the um, credit insurance, which has been employed, um, the premiums which have been put out by the uh, brokers and the underwriters um, has also gone up in turn. And, um, I think that, that that has, you know, that is also sort of like drawing in more institutional investors. The, the cost of financing has gone up. Therefore, there is a better return for um, any new investors coming into the trade finance uh, market. Um, and, and the value proposition also re revolves around this huge low risk aspect 
of trade finance. And every year the ICC does an annual report, um, a risk assessment, um, where the trade finance is assessed at 0.00 something rather, you know, it, it's minute the risks that we see in the trade finance market. So it's, it's the sort of investment which is just ripe for other investors to come in. And if, if certain hedge funds and asset managers can then in turn educate some of their investors that are coming in, we should see a bigger raft of finance from the non-bank community being available for trade finance. And I think that's a, that's a really important thing. Um, challenging maybe the, uh, the, the commercial banks, although um, you know, the commercial banks and the asset managers are increasingly working together. Excellent. And I think that's a great moment just to have a brief interlude. Amos Free to Read Research Reports are here to ensure you're prepared for what is next for the alternative investment industry. How is the hedge fund industry adapting its operating models to the post-COVID landscape? What does the uptick in inflation and interest rate mean for the investors looking to adjust their portfolios? Will hedge funds continue to engage more with the digital assets in ESG? Amos 2022 Outlook Op-Ed addresses these questions and will prepare you to face the key themes expected to dominate the year ahead. For more up-to-date content, offering deep dives into these topics and much more, check out the Amos Research Report in our Education Hub by visiting ama.org today. Welcome back. I'm here with Jolyon Elwood-Russell of Simmons & Simmons and Jonathan Bell at TXF. Jonathan, the report highlights how ESG is now a, a BAU process uh, for many in the trade finance space. Can you expand on that and, and explain why that's important for, for all involved, but specifically the investors into these private credit funds? Um, yes, indeed. Yeah, thank you very much, Drew. And um, ESG is uh, now a huge consideration for everybody. And um, as you say, it's a business as usual process. For many, environmental and social governance considerations are something which, um, if we go back to, um, say, the commercial banks, um, most of those banks will say it's in their DNA. Um, and um, they've been saying that for some time. Whether it has or not is another matter. Um, when we come around to the institutional investors, um, I think that it's something that um, probably isn't in their DNA, but it is becoming within their DNA. And I think that that is, is really an important uh, distinction to make. And, and let's just have a look at why, you know, I mean, for the commercial banks, they've been under the spotlight um, from the trade regulators for some time now. And, um, and that's across the board. And at the same time, their share, the commercial bank shareholders um, have really put onto them this whole aspect of ESG. And, uh, and then and, and the UN SDGs um, as, as well. Um, and for the, for the um, institutional investors, that hasn't so much been the case, but they do know that they need to adhere to those principles as well. And as we've seen recently, um, more and more institutional investors are now seeing ESG as central to how, how they can allocate uh, capital into the um, asset management sector. Um, however, we must bear in mind, I think, that you know that many aspects of ESG are still nascent, and um, you know, particularly in defining um, you know the availability of credible data and the benchmarking of of that, as well as just how ESG is, ESG is, is defined. 
Um, but more and more, I think we will see um, institutional investors uh, pay respect to the fact that they know that they need to adhere to ESG um, guidelines um, in order to bring in certain um, uh, uh, deals into, into their frame. And, um, and throughout the report, I think it was very evident when we spoke to um, a number of the players, um, institutional investor players, um, how keen they are to um, assert their, 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 their feelings for ESG into their transactions. It's not something which they're going to be neglecting going forward. And ESG, I think more generally, just plays an enormous part in short term, in the short term funding and short term um, world. Always traditionally, we always used to see green projects and green finance. But I think that in the short term and the short um, financing angles, um, it's the easiest place to make a difference. And it's the easiest place to be able to change, uh, change behavior. Not only that, you can always get more people involved because, you know, the big projects is always where the company, you know, where the company director signs that big ESG project or the big, you know, ESG lead, uh, link loan or, you know, green financing. But for um, ESG trade finance and sustainable trade and sustainable trade uh, supply chain finance, um, it's a lot easier for whole corporations and everyone within that corporation to make a difference from the procurement team you know, that are out there looking for suppliers um, that to obtain all of the good ESG um, information from those new suppliers and from the purchasing arms to make sure that the, the goods that they're buying are um, ESG and sustainable. Um, so everyone within a, within a corporation can make a um, make that difference um, with when it comes to uh, trade and uh, and supply chain and also this is another way that private credit can uh, have access to um, to trade finance as a um, as a uh, as, as an asset class what we're seeing is that there's so much data within an invoice and that information can also be ESG linked and what you can do is you get great visibility and you can determine and you can demonstrate um, how good your suppliers are. You can then take those invoices that might be within a bank um, in the bank's own supply chain uh, finance program and you can package that up into a sustainable supply chain program and then funds that are interested in ESG can select some of those receivables and take those receivables um, as their eligible criteria and those their package and the banks will sell those receivables to that fund and that is then a uh, that that would then qualify that fund for ESG uh, credentials. So that is another demonstration of how the finance market is coming up with the ability for private credit to access not only trade finance, but also uh, sustainable or ESG linked trade finance. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, uh, when, we were, when we were doing the report um, and speaking to a number of um, people running um, certain funds and, and private credit uh, providers, um, 
we found that there's quite a number of people that are in those uh, in those domains that um, actually come from, say, um, a good commodity finance background um, and uh, from from trading actual trading companies. So they know not just the benefits of um, the EBIT, but the SBIT, the social and the governance, uh, and GBIT, the, the governance. So um, there's a real there's a real um, interest in that, and and that goes hand in hand with the fact that there's more of a spotlight on this than ever there was before. And um, and that spotlight will also in turn revolve around the regulators. It'll only be a matter of time um, some years before the, um, the regulators actually put a spotlight onto, um, onto private credit. And, and so everybody knows that. So it's part of what you have to do. You have to be, there's no hiding place today. You know, you, you are in the spotlight whether you like it or not. Um, but the advantage is for for private credit is that there's some there's a lot of good people that um, um, have great experience, say on the commodity side and the trade finance side, um, from whether it's a commodity trading company or trade finance bank, and they know what is required, and uh, and then they have that expertise too. And I'm glad you mentioned that actually because that was that was going to be my my next question. Uh, just you know, often when people they say ESG and then go off on a tangent that is purely on the E, which I guess for many instances is, you know, the sort of the sexy bit or the most overt bit when it comes to uh, showing your credentials in the sort of sustainable financing space. But does, uh, when we're talking about how much ESG ha has sort of trickled down into this market, does it go beyond sort of the headline things of, you know, we are financing a, a wind farm or, or something very overtly ESG friendly. Does it go all the way through to, as I say, something that might be more relevant to the, to the S or the G uh, when it comes to uh, the counterparties you might want to or not want to be involved in or regions or, or anything more subtle than just, as I say, those big, we're supporting this, uh, this, this forest piece. Uh Yes, Drew. I mean, if I could just pick that pick up on that, um, um, as I mentioned, you know, the, the some of the some of the people that we spoke to have worked in uh, commodity trading companies, and um, um, and and they they know what they need to do beyond the E part. They know what they need to do on the S. Uh, the G is a the G is 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 probably a bit more generic, but on the S front, uh, the social side. Um, so you know, with that, we see trading companies. Um, where they're working in situ, let's just say they're working in, in West Africa, for instance, they're at the farm gate. They are providing, you know, they will provide the buses to take children of, of workers to school. They will provide a school, they will build a school. Um, this, these are probably more common than, than, than people realize. Um, you know, and, and then beyond that, they will put in a health center. There are these kind of things which are going on because they know they need to look after the workers and if you look after the workers the workers to a certain extent will look after you and it really matters in certain um less developed markets where um you know that job is a real requirement and it's a real requirement to get the the children to school to look after the health of the of the families and and that matters to particularly people in in um you know small villages where they might be sourcing say cocoa or coffee or or or, or palm oil or some other kind of uh, of, of crop 
um, and uh, you know the the people that we spoke to, and and then again across you know ac across the, the the commodity spectrum, you, you see that again. You know, I mean, the, the putting in a school um, or developing a health center, putting in infrastructure is is certainly more common um, than uncommon um, with the with the commodity traders these days because they know that it makes a difference. And so yes, there are very tangible things that are being done. And I think also it goes to the very nature of trade finance, which is very operational. Often the financing of, of trade, everyone says, don't worry about the credit. It's if you understand the operations uh, and the trade flow, then you then that is um, the fundamentals. And and how you deal with the operations and the and the within the supply chain and and how you know, you can deal with a um, with with an invoice. You can get some incredible granular information because it's going through multiple parties and the visibility that you can get from um, uh, from a trade and where where the goods are going and where where they're ending up and where is the receiver where where is the um, the, the, the flow of funds it's very very uh visible and increasingly so with a number of with you know as we see the rise of um of trade tech uh and all of the fintechs that are giving great visibility in relation to how um you know where a ship is where a cargo is you know from when you order your amazon exactly where the good is at any particular time and so that type of information is really important and so if that is um you know a key factor to a particular investor fund then you know, it is possible to be able to demonstrate exactly the type of uh, of of what you know what type of um aspect and is it hitting that governance um uh culture is it hitting that governance behavior um that's all be it, it, that's all able to be shown within the data that, that you can find within trade finance i i'd really agree with you on that uh, jolie and it's a good good uh, good point to bring in the fintechs have really led the charge in relation to um the governance aspect on on trade finance and it's particularly noticeable on 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 shipping and as we know 80 percent of trade finance uh, of, of trade um is related to to um overseas shipping and uh, and with that you know the inspection of the shipping whether it's you know with a with satellites tracking or whatever um it all actually matters on the governance front so that um, everything is above board and we can actually sort of see where 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 ships are at any one time um, and then pinpoint the cargoes that they're carrying and 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 everything else. And so, uh, because of that, um, it's real governance, and and uh, it, it matters at the end of the day because it actually makes um, trade more viable for financing. And um, and that that in turn also brings back financiers, both commercial banks and private credit. And just finally, then uh, earlier we were we touched upon uh, APAC and and the uh, the specific. Uh, exacerbation of the financing gap when it comes to that region uh, just in terms of sort of how much disruption the the financing gap brings in terms of the growth but also the 
the great opportunities that are out there. Could we just go back to that and and and, and Jolly, maybe seeing as you're in, in Hong Kong, maybe you could lead on this. Just just sort of flesh that out a bit and, and really explain to us why uh, that region is is most in need of support. Absolutely. And there is it is not a new trend that it is difficult to to get financing um, for SMEs here in Asia. Um, that, uh, that is you know, that is continuing and that that will continue um, for multiples of reasons. Uh, and the most obvious being is it is a developing area. If you look at the US, then you've got 51 or 52 states there, which are all the same in terms of its jurisdictions. You look at Asia, just because we all might use chopsticks um, does not mean that we uh, that each jurisdiction um, is the same. Every jurisdiction is very, very different. Um, and so that's often some of the confusion that and lack of understanding in trade finance is that you know, Asia APAC in itself comprises of multiple different um, jurisdictions, rules, countries. Uh, and so dealing with those is increasingly difficult. And if you're a big financier, why would you want to try and understand all of those jurisdictions when it may be easier to understand just the US? Um, but that said, part of the opportunity in trade finance is that um, you don't really need to understand the credit as much as you need to understand the operations. And if you understand the operations, um, and that can be complex as well, because there's often lots of participants and lots of flows. Um, and by its very nature, it will go cross-border across lots of jurisdictions and all of these different laws that I've just mentioned. But at the same time, Asia's been making things for an awful lot of time. And so there's a lot of experience. And so um, in terms of uh, you know, the, there's, there's no doubt that it's faced a number of, you know, it faces challenges in the same way as anywhere globally, but there is a sense that um, Asia can adapt very quickly, whether it's onshoring, whether it's nearshoring, um, Asia is very, uh, is, is very, very um, dynamic in relation to what goods it wants to make and how it then can sell those goods and how does it finance those goods. So the opportunity is, is, uh, is, is very much there. One thing I would just add in terms of the operations and the way that often um, private credit do not have that operational capability to understand all of the, uh, or, or rather to, to deal in all of the, the documents of title and, and how all the documents move around um, and, and instead, in fact, sort of understand all of the operations. Um, and so one way that they're actually, another way that they're getting access to the, the trade finance as an asset class is to look at some of these um platforms that are growing in asia um and the and uh, uh, uh and apac um that 
are specialists in trade finance and therefore these platforms um, are growing they are you know they understand all of the operations they are very good at connecting buyers sellers and financing and that, and so what private credit and uh, institutional investors are looking at is going well actually that's an easier way to access the asset class is to purchase securitized notes for example um, or, or asset backed notes uh, of the of those particular platforms so that's a trend that we're seeing now and it's a way to access the asset class without having to spend enormous amounts of time and money on the operational features of trade finance yes i go along with that i mean the the, the development of uh, of certain platforms um and um you know linked with digitalization will certainly really help but i'm just going back to um apac as a region um it it's it's the one region that has really stood out over the last two to three years has been the big growth region um, for global trade. Um, and that is only uh, getting more accentuated. And this probably also relates to um, the, the, the huge amount of intra-Asian trade which is taking place. That is also another, another growth, growth factor. And, uh, and as we see, you know, and, and as you know, Jolian, I mean, most of this trade is done with medium-sized companies, SMEs, um, often trading with um, the big trading companies, the Sogo Shoshas of, of Japan um, and, and, and other multinationals around the world. Um, but there's this mass of SMEs and, uh, and medium-sized companies, um, which is, are, are really missing out on finance at the moment. And I think that what is, what is required is um, certainly more, um, more due diligence with those. There's more financials which are being asked for by counterparties. And we're seeing the development of that, but um, it'll only really sort of like pick up when um, we've got those financials in place. And at the same time, with more trade finance being structured, we can get around some of the things that we actually need to, to make um, that trade um, more secure um, in, in the first place. And certainly with um, private uh, credit coming in and possibly working with, um, with in conjunction with banks, platforms at the same time, uh, I think that we'll see um, that becoming that some of that trade becoming a bit more secure and hopefully that trade gap being uh, somewhat reduced, um, although um, we certainly don't see that uh, uh, taking place at the moment because there is there is this this huge gap which needs to be filled. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking uh, some cautious optimism there from the report and, and, and hopefully uh, this is something we can maybe come back to in a year's time and, and you can tell me all the progress we've made in this arena. Uh, but before I let you both go, uh, we've obviously covered a huge amount, uh, you know, ranging from, you know, the industry in, a, in, a, in the broadest sense all the way through to, to ESG and, and regional differences there as well. But if, if our readers or listeners, I should say, can take away one thing from this report what would you like that to be there's many ways for private credit or, or non-bank lenders to get involved in uh in trade finance as an asset class and the there are many ways to get successful returns but there's still an educational gap there's still a lack of understanding in terms of how um the operations of um of, of trade and supply generally 
happen um, and understanding the structures and the finance and the operational risks and the financing um, risks around that is will will help the industry and will help the uh, will help private credit people to um, to really understand uh, the market and have a better way and a better opportunity um, to invest in the asset class. The risks are different, but it doesn't mean that they are um, any less of a risk or any more of a risk. They are just different. And if they are understood uh, and the structures and are structured accordingly, then there is no reason not to um, not to benefit and take the opportunity of what tends to be you know, from a from a, a pure volume perspective a very low risk asset class. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm, I'll I'll certainly go along with that. The, I mean, the word education is is the massive thing which will really come. One of the things which one of the things which will come out of this report. Um, and as you said, you know, the education of, of the sector, but particularly of the commercial banks, the commercial banks in understanding what private credit can actually do with them and for them to help them with their clients. And so given that, um, that and, and, and one of the things that really came out in the report was the lack of understanding by the commercial banks of, of the institutional investor, the private credit market. Um, so they need to wake up to the fact that their their business lines are probably declining and they need to actually sort of to come into um, the private credit um, scene a lot more, collaborate with um, with institutional investors. And there'll be this big thing of opportunities, opportunities, it's education and opportunities, because the report in itself is entitled Private Credit and the Trade Finance Opportunity. The opportunities are immense. And um, working together um, through collaboration, um, I think is going to be uh, the way forward for private credit and trade finance to, to really take off. Um, so the bank's low, low lack of knowledge of non-bank lending and commodity trade finance in particular really needs to sort of to step up. And, um, and we should see um, a big uptick in, in, in that collaboration taking place. And um, I look forward to the day when, you know, we're, we're looking at this report, say, in a year or two years' time, and, and we can actually see some of the developments which are taking place. And I'm sure it will. I think it, it, it really will. Um, and, and just, I mean, finally, I mean, as, as you mentioned, Drew, um, for everybody that wants to look at the report, it's freely available um, on the AIMA website, and it's also freely available on the TXF News uh, website too. So people can go in there and uh, download the report and read the report for themselves. Yes, and you have both done an excellent job in uh, giving us the key themes, but I would still encourage all our listeners to uh, take the time to read the full report. Uh, it sets out data as well, though, as well, which underpins everything we've discussed today. And uh, as I say, education, collaboration, seizing the opportunities, I think is probably the perfect place to sum up. And, and say on, on that note, there is a wealth of information on uh, the AIMA website, uh, the Alternative Credit Council website, which has that report and others on, on similar topics. And of course, Simmons & Simmons, uh, never sleeping global organization putting out uh, some great reports there as well uh, so all that's left for me to do is thank you both so much for coming on giving up your time and, and sort of helping us walk through what is, is clearly a market full of opportunities that we will have to keep a close eye on 
over the months and years ahead. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. Our next episode will be a special one as we hear from our people on the ground in Miami attending the AMA ACC Private Credit Investor Forum, which comes on the first day of Global Alps Week 2022. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.